and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, we'll be continuing on reading through Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, starting a new section called Ideology and Terror. So, what we'll be doing is, what we always like to do, give a brief recap of the last episode to start us off, and then after this, discussing ideologies of both the Nazis, which is the Aryan race, and the Bolsheviks, which is the idea of class struggle, and then rounding off with a discussion of terror. Getting stuck into our recap then, which was in the last episode we dealt with the steps to total domination, which revolved around three steps. The first step was to kill the juridical in man, which was to put people in camps, and the camps themselves are out with the traditional penal system. So this is where we had the concentration camps themselves and the whole very suspect and suspicious nature of concentration camps because in the traditional penal system way of doing things you have a police investigation, you're able to clearly say who you suspect has done the crime and then we go through the whole process of finding out whether that person is guilty or not. And then if they are guilty, then they go to prison and serve a sentence. But here, what is the main aim of concentration camps is to work out with that judicial process. And so how exactly does it work then is where people are then sent to the camps and that is solely through the process of the ideology. In this given instance, it could be either for the Jewish population or for those people who are seen as counter-revolutionary in Soviet Russia. So here we have a whole system in which it doesn't matter if somebody is guilty or not. It's solely having the mindset of identifying people within the populace that are identified as enemies and then putting these people into the camps. Then for the second step, we had the whole process of what's called killing the morality in man, where it touched upon the deep sort of philosophical, ethical problems of how can anybody do good? And the answer is you can't. It's physically impossible to do any sort of good whatsoever. Then comes in the very good reply to that. Well, if it's impossible to do good whatsoever, then why don't you just escape? And that's also not an option either because if you did escape then what would happen is your entire family would be executed as well. So here we have the horrific example as well from Albert Camus that Hannah Arendt gives of a Greek woman given the dilemma of which one of her three children was to be killed and of course then comes in that point if then the woman chose not to kill any of them whatsoever then comes in the whole point of then she would have just been killed herself so their choice is not between good and evil anymore it's between murder and murder as well as we had the discussion of people who are made accomplices like the inmates and Jews and so forth to assist in all the crimes that are going on within the camps and then this acts as a diversionary tactic 
where all the blame is then placed upon the people helping out rather than upon the SS themselves. Then we go into the third part, which is to kill man's unique identity. And how exactly is this done? Because people are treated like cattle and herd-like, stripped of all clothes, belongings, as well as having their hair shaven off. And what does all this whole process of stripping someone naked and shaving their hair, of course, because we then go into that explanation of how important it is through our own personality and individual expression that we have in our clothes as well as for our hair as well getting it styled and making it look good in a certain way is all expression of who we are but Hannah Rent did say that this last part of killing someone's unique identity is in fact the hardest part to do why was that the case because we went into the discussion of stoicism and Seneca and what's one of the main points from that is that people are able to try and have a method of coping with everything that's going on why because you're able to try and say okay xyz is gonna happen therefore you can try and mentally prepare yourself for the horrors of the day and trying to cope with everything that's going on so it's the hardest part of killing someone, basically, and stripping it away completely. But once it is destroyed, people lose all sense of what it's like to be human. What is those deep philosophical points that Hannah Arendt says that makes us human? All those spontaneous and unpredictable moments. And a good example of that would be a boyfriend and girlfriend situation the boyfriend just trying to do something unpredictable and spontaneous to show his love for his girlfriend like buying flowers for instance once all that spontaneity and unpredictable nature of what makes us human is gone what does that then transform us into being robotic and predictable and drone-like as well as another good concept for that. So that rounds us off for the last episode, killing the juridical in man, killing the moral in man, and then killing man's unique identity. Then we come into this week's episode, looking at the ideologies of the Nazis in Soviet Russia, and then rounding off with the discussion of terror. So let's get stuck into what exactly is an ideology. And so, an ideology, as we said before in previous episodes, provides a simple, clear explanation for how things work, and it's completely consistent. So, in terms of history, all the variations and conflicts are reduced to just one clear idea, or, if we're dealing with nature, then all the variations and continual transformation is equally reduced to one clear idea. And what are those ideas? The main ideology for then the Nazis is the Aryan race, and for Soviet Russia it's based upon class struggle. So, we have the main idea then for ideology as a whole. We have the entirety of history itself boiled down to just simply class struggle. Then when we deal with, well, what is nature and how does that unfold, it's all going to be down into the idea of a master race and 
how exactly do you arrive at that master race in the future for the Aryan race and the Nazis? So, let's deal with the idea of the Aryan race and the Nazis' idea of that starting as often. So, this is from the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum website, and it says here, The word Aryan has a long history. Initially, it was used to refer to groups of people who spoke a variety of related languages, including most of European ones and several Asian ones. Over time, however, the word took on new and different meanings. In the late 19th and early 20th century, some scholars and others transformed the word Aryans into a mythical race that they claimed was superior to all other races. And here it says a little bit more, setting it in context of the Nazi party. From the very beginning of the Nazi party in the 1920s, Adolf Hitler and the ideologues of National Socialism promoted this concept. They adapted, manipulated, and radicalized the unfounded belief in the existence of an Aryan race and its superiority to fit their ideology and policies. Nazi officials used this concept to support the idea the Germans belonged to a master race. Furthermore, they specified that non-Aryan applied foremost to Jews, who were identified as a main racial threat to German society. The term was also applied to Roma and Sinti, who are gypsies, and black people. And rounding off it says, to prove one's Aryan racial status, individuals had to trace back their ancestry to 1800 or, for members of the SS, to 1750. Many Germans hired genealogists to search church, synagogue, or official bureaus of vital statistics for birth records, baptismal records, and death certificates. Once all this time-consuming research was completed, the information was submitted to the Reich Office for Kinship Research for review. So then, for the idea of an Aryan race, we always think of those blonde-haired, blue-eyes image that's always given to us, but it's nice to get into a little bit of the history here of where the word exactly came from and what it used to mean, which, of course, didn't mean anything in relation to what the Nazis wanted it to mean whatsoever, as it says, originally referring to a variety of spoken languages, including most of European ones as well as several Asian ones but then it's twisted into that whole superior master race idea that then the Nazis latch onto and then we have of course the whole idea of tracing back family histories in order to make sure that nobody had any Jewish ancestry whatsoever and going to the absurd lengths of having to make sure that it's all the way back to 1800 or in the case of the SS there it says to 1750 and the underlying idea of the Aryan race is in fact Darwin's theory of natural selection. As Hannah Arendt says, Darwin's theory of man as a product of natural development does not stop with the present species. And here we have a nice quote as well 
about Darwin's theory of natural selection from a website called biologywise.com. And it says, Darwin's theory of natural selection states that nature selects organisms that have features favorable for their survival while eliminating inferior species. Natural selection is a key to the origin of new species from the existing ones. And then the article goes and explains more about it. But we have a great example to explain Darwin's theory of natural selection. And that is with dog breeding. Because when we go into the whole idea of dog breeding, then what do people want is a pure breed of whichever dog it is. And let's say we'll go with, for instance, a Labrador. And what do people not want is for it to have a mixed breed, let's say... Uh, Dalmatian and a Labrador because then you've messed it up it's no longer just representing the pure breed of what a Labrador is so therefore in order to make sure you have a pure breed of the dog you have to make sure it's breeds with just solely other Labradors and also to make sure that they have key features and traits of the dog this is all sounding very familiar to the Nazis and their whole process of identifying the Aryan race, isn't it? Because then we can quite clearly apply that into the Nazis and how they use Darwinism to create that whole idea of a master race. Because what is a master race in that way, like dog breeding, trying to have a race that's devoid of any defects whatsoever. What do they identify as defective is the Jewish population. Any German that's mixed with Jews is ultimately defective, and therefore they must make sure that their family history is clear of any Jewish ancestry whatsoever. And then, in order to make sure you have a pure Aryan breed of human then you have to make sure it's only just breeding germans with germans and then making sure also that they have key aryan traits and therefore it's not surprising in the slightest that the nazis themselves came up with a whole breeding program as it says here on the website timeline.com with the title the nazi breeding and, and infanticide program you probably never knew about it sounds like the stuff of a dystopian fantasy women encouraged to bear children and to hand over to a totalitarian regime but for thousands of europeans including abba singer annie fried langstad such a program isn't imaginary it's a story of their lives Langstad and approximately 20,000 others are the Lebensborn, survivors of a Nazi breeding program designed to create racially pure children for the Third Reich. Between 1935 and 1945, the secret program encouraged racially fit women to bear children for the Reich and protected babies thought to exemplify Nazi German Aryan ideals. Translated as fount of life the Liebensborn program involved secret birthing facilities hidden identities and the thefts of hundreds of thousands of children and one of those thefts of children that we've touched upon before is the kidnapping of polish children in which you had tens of thousands of children all kidnapped because they are meant to exemplify and had traits 
of the Aryan race. So then, let's move from the Nazi discussion of the Aryan race into now a discussion of Soviet Russia and the Bolsheviks' idea of class struggle, which is derived from Marx's theory of history, and as is seen in the Communist Manifesto, which is written by Friedrich Engels as well, and that is the whole of human history is based upon the fact that there has always been an oppressor and an oppressed. And they call this oppressor the bourgeoisie, which is the middle class. And this is either in the form of a petty bourgeois, who is someone that's wealthy like a landlord, or the bourgeoisie itself, which are the millionaires and factory owners. The name of the oppressed that they give is called the proletariat or the working class. And some reasons that they are oppressed, that Marx and Engels says, is that they are underpaid and work overly long hours. And so initially when you have the idea of communism or the name of Karl Marx pops up you initially are incredibly apprehensive about it as well because you have all the horrific things that's happened within Soviet Russia as well as China but it's always good to take a step back and to try and just read the text for what it's trying to say. And quite a lot of their points is all good points that trying to argue for beneficial things for people and to make sure, like we just said, that the working conditions are fantastic for people, that you're not working stupidly long hours in a day, and that people are paid a fair day's wage for a fair day's amount of work. And all those good points, of course, is come up in a contemporary situation where people are very much now starting to come into the argument that, in fact, having overtly long working hours is detrimental and what exactly is good for people is a four-day working week instead where people are paid exactly the same amount of money and why is this so beneficial to everybody is because of productivity which kind of makes sense in a way because if you're well rested then you'll be able to do your work much better and therefore that has that knock-on effect of increasing productivity and therefore having a much more beneficial effect rather than just simply trying to slog through work all the time and then just trying to overly work people is going to have that detrimental effect because people are not going to be productive because people are going to be tired and want to go home rather than be at work. And some other points as well that they talk about that's really great is stopping child labor as well as stopping the exploitation of women. And arguing for those incredibly feminist points as well to stop viewing women as just solely baby factories ultimately as well as to stop child labor which was a problem as well when children are sent down into coal mines and so forth to work and so overall what can you say about the working class or the proletariat we get this key features from Gerald A. Cohen, who says, It constitutes the majority of people in society. They produce the wealth of society, consists of the exploited members of society, the members 
are the needy people in society. And when these four elements are combined, the working class has nothing to lose from revolution and the working class can and will engage in a revolutionary transformation of society, which then goes into sort of the last lines of the communist manifesto, where Marx and Engels argues that they have nothing to lose whatsoever but your chains, to ultimately that people should band together, group together, come together in a union, fight against their oppressors, and they have got absolutely nothing to lose in that situation other than the improvement of their overall life. And so what can we do then is use this sort of Marxist lens let's say and have a look at exactly how did the russian revolution unfold because you could say the bolsheviks represented the proletariat overthrown the bourgeoisie and then this ensured the realization of marx's vision where the proletariat has thrown off the chains of the oppressors and therefore can take back the power for themselves and this is to establish then a communist government that acts in the interest of the working class against any form of ruling class. So overall, one side of the argument could be that the Marxist vision was realized and throughout sort of the 20th century, we could see with the fall of the Berlin Wall really being the key example of does Marx's overall argument for communism not have just shattered at that point and then there's the whole philosophical debates of what can you say from marx and is there such a thing as still being a communist following the fall of the berlin wall and so forth but then we get sidetracked of course so let's come back into talk about our last point then which is to talk about terror now why exactly would terror come into it is because terror, as Hannah Arendt says, is the essence of totalitarian domination. And we've got a nice little quote. Its chief aim is to make it possible for the force of nature or of history to race freely through mankind unhindered by any spontaneous human action. Which is another way of putting it is terror is the realization of historical forces which then we'll be dealing with Soviet Russia, or natural forces, which then we'll be dealing with Nazi Germany. Terror becomes total because when there's no longer any opposition, nothing stands in the party's way, as well as the fact we have the singling out of a specific enemy like Jews or people who are counter-revolutionary to whom the terror is let loose upon as well. So... The whole essence of it then is to have a posh word of saying it is actualization of all these given forces. That terror, as we just said, is the essence of the whole thing. Why does terror happen? Because when you put the ideology into practice, it can be only implemented through terror. And then what exactly is that going to be doing is to try and realize Marx's vision for Soviet Russia or trying to realize the whole idea and goal of an Aryan race in the future for Nazi Germany. You can only have complete terror once you have complete 
domination. And so we go back into those points covered as well when we had the first stages of trying to remove all forms of opposition as well as just removing all forms of political opposition and just journalistic opposition and so forth. It's only once you have that initial stage removed, then you have the relation into a complete terror that can take place, hunting down and tracking enemies as we've covered in previous episodes and so forth with the secret police. And what will the secret police be doing and what's everything focused upon? Those key ideological enemies that need to be routed out and hunted down. And this is where we also start to touch upon a little bit of points that we've covered previously as well. That the ruler is not wise or just but acts in that prophetic way then of implementing the forces of nature or of history. And it doesn't matter about the traditional roles of being guilty or not. Because if we can see, people who are identified as counter-revolutionary and the Jewish people themselves are completely innocent. Why you targeted, why you made an enemy is because everybody is subjective to those superhuman forces of history or nature. And we got another good quote here. For the Nazis, nature itself decided not only who was to be eliminated, but also who is to be trained as an executioner. And then Hannah Arendt gives us the example. How did Himmler choose people for the SS by looking at photographs? And whoever had the Aryan qualities would be selected to join into the organization. But... As we've also said, this whole process of identifying enemies as well as putting enemies in camps and so forth, it's a continual process. There's no end to it. As what's made in the first half of this section, this continual process of movement all the time. And as we've said previously as well, it's also trying to then establish future enemies for then another wall to come up against and what we've touched upon was for the Nazis in the Eastern Front was the Polish population was going to happen exactly in the same way once they dealt with the Jewish population. Why is all these hurdles necessary? Because advancement can't happen unless you have those hurdles in the first place. And so as even Arendt says rounding off for the first half of the section it's that continual perpetual movement. Everything's always in continual movement and it's never in a process of going to stop. Also because it's focused on the future as well. So what can we say overall rounding off then is that the Nazis' ideology of an Aryan race underpins all their actions. This can be traced to Darwin's theory of natural selection. Soviet Russia's ideology of class struggle underpins all their actions. This can be traced to Marx's view of history and concept of dialectical materialism. Terror is the essence of the totalitarian regimes. This is because it's a process of being the ideologies into reality. There is a focus upon an objective enemy such as Jews or counter-revolutionaries and that the leader or ruler is not wise but acts like a prophet and forces others to act upon these historical or natural forces. 
So overall, for this episode, then, I think it's nice that we touched upon the, the ideologies of both the Nazis and Soviet Russia as it's been something that's always been the elephant in the room when we've just went through the discussion. So in the next episode, then, we'll be rounding off the discussion of terror and ideology. Feel free to check out the podcast's official website at www.dissectingphilosophy.com where you can check out my blog posts. I currently have two on the philosophy of Gilles Deleuze. The first one is dealing with his concept of difference and the second one is dealing with the epistemology which is another just posh way of putting theory of knowledge if you fancy a quick read of those. And feel free to drop me an email at my address with any questions at dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com. On the Patreon page is the ongoing discussion of Slavoj Zizek's Pandemic COVID-19 Shakes the World. The first episode's completely free, and then the subsequent episodes are under the £5 tier, or your regional equivalent. And then lastly, I can be found on Twitter at I am a rubberman. Many thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time.